So Genesis 18, you know, we get to uh, see all these little, like, what do we want to call them, vignettes of trial and error of Abram. Now he's Abraham. But through all the trials and successes and failures, we also get to see another facet and aspect of God being revealed. And it's really just an example for us as as we grow and learn and falter and fall down and get back up that there's always something to be learned about God. And that's what really keeps us going. You realize that Satan really just wants to get you focused on you all the time and get you measuring your success by all sorts of checklists that may not be God's. You know, that's the beauty of grace is grace just says you're here because God's God's will. <laughs> he just loves you and we don't stand before him performance-wise. We're his children. But in this story, you guys know this verse. I'm just going to read it real quick. James 2.23. The scriptures mention this aspect of Abraham to us about three different times. It says, And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. He's the friend of God. What does it look like to be a friend of God? I mean, you look at our natural human friendships, and for guys, we just get together and don't talk, right? Isn't that how guys get together? Girls, you get together and talk and you know, you have your, you know, your tea parties and your finger cookies. And guys, we just lawn chairs in the garage and just look at like, or up here, you, you lean on the pickup truck, right? Well, <laughs> my neighbor had a, had a Dodge. It took four guys to keep that thing from falling over. I mean, every night I drive home from work and they're all out there, you know, drinking the barley pops. But there's an intimacy implied with a friend. Friends have secret codes. Friends dress alike. Friends, there's just something special there. Sometimes friends are just opposite of each other. I don't like hanging out fat, obnoxious people. So I got too much of that in my life. I don't need more of it. You know, like that's why I married skinny. You know, like I can eat more. <laughs> but the idea is, is like there's just something about hanging out with somebody. There's there's something you can't even describe it. You just like to be with a certain person or people to just be in their presence. Jesus tells us in John 15, he tells this to his disciples. He says, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. Now, my daughter would say that to her friends (laughs) because she's the boss, apparently. She told me she's the boss. Got one of those, anyone? Anyone have a boss at home or something? Yeah. He says, no longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all things that I heard from my father I have made known to you. Intimacy. In intimacy, there's a revelation, there's knowledge, there's things you know about your friends, there's things you know about your spouse. And you know, a good friendship has mystery. You're always learning, right? You know, if you've been married, hopefully you've been married to the same woman, but seven different types of women in that woman, right? They change. Guys, what do we do? Buy a new hat every four years after the other one gets greasy and falls apart. But, 
you know, you realize that that mystery kind of keeps things going. There's further things to learn about that person. But we're going to see in the life of Abraham here, in this little short story, is what, the, what does it look like for him to be a friend of God? And I've, my first point I want to make note is you get to be spontaneous. Abraham is spontaneous. So ask yourself this question. Can God interrupt you and override your plans? All right? Is he the God of interruption? See, God's going to show up, and Abraham's going to run and greet him. Now, what does a hundred-year-old man look like running? You know, <laughs> like God's going to kill Abraham if he runs, you know? Like, so, slow down there, guy. <laughs> you know, in the Middle East, the tradition was is the owner of the house would just, or rather the tent would, would just remain in the threshold of the tent while the visitors would come in. But Abraham obviously knew this was the Lord, and so he ran to him. So he's spontaneous. You ever recognize God in his interruptions? Sometimes we're inconvenienced, aren't we? Remember, just there's so many stories where I, you know I was walking to church one day and this lady was asking me for money so she could day drink. And the first thing I thought is like, why, why are you bugging me? I'm on my way to church. Come on, just see I got important things to do. And it's like, maybe the Lord centered to me. Maybe I needed to minister to her in the moment. But I, the first gut reaction was, she is inconveniencing me. Or I've been on plane flights and rerouted here and there. And I've learned, okay, maybe it's the Uber driver I need to minister to. Or maybe it's the guy in the parking lot. And sure enough, it tends to be true. So God shows up. Verse 1 says, Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. Now, in the Middle East, this is what we would call the siesta time. The heat of the day gets pretty intense in the desert, and people typically don't work. They just take a nap. In verse 2, it says, So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground. We're going to see that these two other men, based on what we're going to read in the next chapter, these are angels, right? This whole idea of God in the flesh is called a theophany. We, we talked a bit about that going back to Melchizedek, right? We're going to see this all through Genesis where God himself will put on the earth suit for special missions. But the next aspect in order to be considered a friend of God is humility, he bowed himself to the ground. He saw, Abraham saw himself in light of who God is. You can only worship honestly in humility. The closer you get to God, the more honest you become with who you are, really in light of Christ. Have you noticed the longer you walk with God, the less faithy you feel? And the more you realize, as Paul tells us, he's a sinner and about 20 years into his ministry, he's now the chief of sinners. Like, as you walk in the light of God's word, and as you get close to the Lord, that light shines on your darkness, okay? So, practically speaking, it's like when you go into a mirror, do you go in and look at the comely parts of your body, or what's the first thing you notice in the mirror? 
your pimples, your zits, right? The fact you need to shave, you got crusties in your eyes. Like you always go for what's bad. And that's why you have magnifying mirrors, to examine that so you can correct it. And that's why we have God's word. It's a mirror. It shows you how much of a carnal, vomitous, wretched, fleshy bag of pus you and I really are, right? And that might hurt your pride, but it's supposed to hurt your pride. You think of in worship what you think about during worship. You think about why you don't sing because you're worried what your voice sounds like. Or sometimes you think about what would someone think of me if I just let go emotionally during worship. I, 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 I look at sports fans and how fanatically they are. Like what if we would all come to church with our t-shirts off and half our body painted yellow and blue with our favorite team slogans. But in church we're like, oh, come to the altar. I hope this finishes really soon. Um, right? We're so self-conscious. You're not supposed to be self-conscious in the presence of God. You're supposed to be God-conscious. And so when you, when you go to the Lord in humility, you can now be honest. See, the other thing is Abram was a real somebody in the world, wasn't he? Like this guy had a small detachment of fighting soldiers. He's He's a sheik, right? This guy, this guy is a, a, a force to be reckoned with, but not in the presence of God, right? In the presence of God, we're all the same. We're all, we're all, you know, what the psalmist writes, what is man that you're even mindful of him? We're, we're maggots on a rock. And that's not to hurt you. It's just to put things into proper perspective in order to give God his due diligence. Verse 3, and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought, and wash your feet, and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread, that you may refresh your hearts. <coughs> After that you may pass by, inasmuch as you have come to your servant. They said, Do as you have said. Now the other aspect of being a friend of God is Abraham served God, right? He wasn't scripted. He used what he had. He was generous. He, he didn't do the bare minimum. He didn't call for a servant to wash his feet. He is going to serve. So if you're saved, see, God puts a will to and a want to in your heart to serve the Lord. No one has to tell you to, right? There's, there's, when there's a Christian without a ministry, it's a real contradiction, right? It, in my own bylaws for the church, the job description that I've been given is to minister regularly before the Lord as the Lord sees fit. Number one job of a, a pastor. Oftentimes I forget that. I think it's all the other secondary things. But if I'm not truly ministering to the Lord, then everyone's going to suffer, Ministry to the Lord isn't ministry to people. See, you will minister to people in your service to the Lord, but if you just simply minister to people, you will find that you will come up short because people are obnoxious. They make messes. Sheep are messy, right? And you can grumble and complain. And if you're grumbling and complaining about your ministry or, or you're withholding your love from people, who are you serving? Right? Remember, we're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You may not get a thank you 
serving the Lord. Now, that's the thing. A servant has no rights. You'll never burn out if you're truly serving the Lord. Jesus says, my burden is easy and my yoke is light. But in his service, his service was immediate. You know, if you wait for the right feeling to serve the Lord, the feelings may never come and you may never serve. I've heard people tell me, oh, I'm going to wait till I retire to serve God. No, you won't. You're not doing anything now. You're not going to do more later, right? The Lord wants you right now. So Abraham, verse 6, hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree, and they ate it. Why not just order takeout? (laughs) You know, Abraham gave his very best. This was a very costly meal. He was very generous, and it was also very time-consuming, and it involved the whole household, his wife, his servants. Everybody participated. And, And really... In our ministry, if our ministry does not cost us anything, it's worth nothing. God doesn't want our leftovers. He wants our very best time, talent, and treasure. So ask yourself this question, how much is God worth to you? What does God in your service and your ministry cost you? Are you generous towards God? Not just financially, but are you giving him the best of your time, best of your talent, best of your treasure? Realize, Christian, God is a debtor to no man. Oftentimes, Christians withhold their service because they think they're going to lose all these things, that there's going to be loss. But we're going to get down into the idea of Matthew 6, where first seek the kingdom of God. Oftentimes, in our pursuit of secondary things, we create the very situation we wish to avoid. When you're not tithing, when you're not using your time for the Lord, he actually puts a hole in your purse, for lack of better terms. You'll never get caught up, right? Your appliances are always breaking, cars always breaking. You never have enough time. You never get anything done. You're always behind the curve where God just, in a way, if you read Haggai properly, he just kind of puts a hole in your purse to be like, look, you're using what I've given you for you. You're not giving it back to me. And not not that God's broke. God is never broke, right? But God wants to be acknowledged. He wants to see your submission in those areas. Verse 9. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here in the tent. How would you react if three guys came to your house and said, where's your wife? And as Andy Kaufman once said, he said, take my wife. Really? Take her. No, 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 that's not what's going on here. But there's a message for Sarah in this story. Verse 10. And he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life, and behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. So it's impossible. It's physically impossible. She's past menopause. There's just no way things are going to produce a child. 
Notice, though, verse 12, Therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, After I have grown old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord, being old also? She's also thinking, not only am I old and withered up, but so is the old man. We don't even buy green bananas. You know, early on, we read that Abraham laughed, but his laughter was in belief. His laughter was in delight of God's promise. He was thinking, I don't know how it's going to happen, but I know it will. Sarah, I believe, is laughing in contempt of God's promises. You think of, you think of John the Baptist's dad. I just read that story in Luke the other day where the angel Gabriel comes to him and says, hey, you're going to have a kid. And he's just like, that's an old prayer. And then the angel said, well, since you didn't believe me, I'm not going to let you talk till the baby's born. Lost his message. But Sarah's laughing, but she gets busted. <laughs> you ever get busted by God? Just, just flat out cold busted. You just, you're doing something, you're saying something, and you, you, you just get that subtle rebuke. But God is gentle with her. But Verse 13, let's keep going. It says, And the Lord said to Abram, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I surely bear a child since I am old? Underline this, Christian. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Whatever your what about you're dealing with, whatever your problem is, whatever looming bill, looming fear factor, your what if, and how are we going to make it, and we're all going to die, what's God going to do with my life, whatever it is, is there anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you. Write that down too, appointed time. Everything occurs in God's timing. Sometimes he's going to knock out two birds with one stone. You don't know what's behind his timing. And I've learned to laugh at, you know, you would get the, you get the original behind on your bill notice. And I'm like, I'll wait till the red letter edition shows up. You get the next one, which is like, you better pay or, and then the red one's like, the truck's on its way with the wrench to turn your gas off. But I've found in that, I don't fear that. Not, not that this is an excuse for poor stewardship, but I've been in positions where I just couldn't make an, a, a bill in its time because the thing is, is the timing is the Lord's. And sometimes he shows up 11th hour, 59th minute, 59th second, right? Just at the last, just, ah. That's how he stretches your faith. according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have, or excuse me, um, where am I here? Da, 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 da. Is anything too hard? According to the time, yeah, I was right. And Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh. <laughs> For she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Fear causes us to do all sorts of things that aren't right. You know, the Lord did not give us a spirit of fear. Never, ever make a decision based on fear. But fear is part of the human element. Fear is part of, it causes us to go back into bad patterns. And, you know, we don't have a crystal ball under our future. 
And sometimes what I would say this is a diagnostic moment. God was exposing to her an improper attitude she had towards him. And so when you, you hit a trial or a hiccup, and the way you react towards it, sometimes you think the word of God is negated by your circumstance. Like when you're forced to either take cap, capture that, that promise God gave you in his word, or look at your circumstance going, I'm way beyond being able to make this happen. I guess, God, your word's wrong. It's never wrong, right? He's just producing something. And often he gives you an opportunity to deal with this stuff. But in this, friendship with God requires conformity. Conformity to his will. See, God sets the terms. Conformity involves a, a very nasty word. It's called submission. Right? We're Americans. We, we fought the British. We don't, we don't submit to anything. Right? We're McDonald's. We're Burger King. We want it now, hot and fresh, and we want it our way. And that carries into our walk with God. Right? Careful, don't set terms with God. See, see, we need to come into subjection to his word. So continuing on with that thought, is God first in your work, school, and play? Do you set your week around going to church? Do you set your week around attending midweek Bible study? Do you set your week around personal devotions? And, and oftentimes, what's the first thing to go when you have a better opportunity to do something? It's always something spiritual you get rid of. Oh, I'm going to the Super Bowl party. I can't, I can't go to church today. Well, why? Well, it's the best game ever. Well, so was last year's. And so was the year before. Like, who, who won the Super Bowl four years ago? I don't know. We remember the commercials. Who remembers the Clydesdales having the snowball fight from the Budweiser commercial? That was the best commercial ever. I don't remember the game. But as God, do you structure God? And I think the reason we don't is we're, we're back to the fear of loss. There's Christians who don't, who don't come to church because they work Sundays. And they, they just think in their impossible kingdom that if they don't work, they're going to starve to death. As if God would give you a blessing that would prohibit you from walking in the fullness of a faith walk, right? So I, I'm challenging people that structure your life around first going to church, first doing your ministries, first serving the Lord, and you know what? It's going to cost you. You know, I had an opportunity when I completed my intern program. The Lord had me um, <laughs> on unemployment to finish my intern program, and the minute I finished it up, my, my unemployment dried up, so I had to go out to the job market, and oh, Satan showed up with the dream job. Got an offer from a medical stint company in Minneapolis called Boston Scientific. It's huge. And they found my resume through a temp service, and they said, you are number one go-to guy. I'm like, oh, no, here it is. Here's what we're going to do. And this is 2003, and they said, we're going to start you off temp, $18 and some change, while we put you through HVAC school, we'll get you your plumber's degree, we'll get your electrician license, we'll teach you to reverse osmosis, we'll buy you tools, here's a rollaway, here's a laptop. You work thirds, four tens. That would kill everything. I just got married, right? Any wives want to be married to a guy who works thirds, right? The money was huge. And then they said, after you complete your training, we'll bump you up starting 25 an hour, plus full bennies. And I'm like, oh, man, this is, 
too good to be true. And I told them, I said, hey, I'm going into ministry. I was leading a youth ministry at the time, and I just needed to be available. I said, look, I'm just really looking for just a simple job. And he goes, hey, I appreciate your honesty, because most people would take the job and then tell me all the conditions on their end, and then I'd have to fire them. But he says, let me just give you the tour of the facility. Oh, man. It's like Satan took Jesus to the, the top of the temple and said, if you just bow your knee, all this can be yours. Showed me my brand new Snap-on rollaway, fully loaded with tools, a laptop, and I had my own electrical schematic for the whole building shows me everything all the tools all the just it was just a cake cake setup and he's like oh we have a we even have a a workout room here you know he's got this full gym set up and you're like ah. but i just had to trade my life for it so i had to say no and then, like, a week later, I get a job from my local bicycle shop at nine seventy-five an hour. So it was great because I got to ride my bike to work every day because I couldn't afford gas, you know. But, you know, it was God's will that the Chinese buffet was right next door to it. So I got to eat pretty good, fuel me up to get me home. But I decided in that moment that I was going to live my life structured around the things of God. And so I had, to, I had to make concessions. I had to live a simpler life. And then in that season, the Lord was preparing me to move to the UP. So we really realized, you know, God was just peeling us back. So we learned how to be more frugal. But he was freeing us up from what we think we needed, you know. I made really good money at one point, but I was just $3 for every one I was making was going out the back door. I was eating it. I was going out to eat. I was going to the movies. I was spending it on junk. You know, I just was buying junk. I just had a lot of money as a young man. And, and so I had to learn better spending habits. But I just really was in a season where God was going to be first and I was going to be available for him to use me. And so I needed to be able to trust God and let God do what I couldn't do for myself. I couldn't be self-sufficient. But God wanted my heart behind that. He didn't want him to be an afterthought. He didn't want to be side salad Jesus. I'll do this if I have free time. That's not what God wants. You know, as we said earlier, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and there's a condition to that. All these things shall be added to you. What are all these things? All the cares of the world. We, we kind of think God's a deadbeat dad. Well, if I don't work this luxurious lifestyle, I can't have this, I can't, God doesn't, he won't be able to provide for all these things felt needs that I have, and it's like, no, God feeds his kids. You know, we have a saying, where he leads me, I will follow. What he feeds me, I will swallow. He doesn't tell you what you're going to eat some days. He just says you are. And, oh, I've had the ministry cookbook, the ramen noodle, green bean, expired decaf coffee, green jello dinners. Oh, you haven't even been in ministry till you learn how to take the condiments from all your favorite restaurants and come home and combine them and make stuff with them, right? You buy the bag of potatoes and you can do 20 different recipes from a bag of potatoes or eggs and tortillas. You just, you buy just the raw ingredients and you, you know, you end up just putting it all in the big pot and eat it for the week. And, you know, there's people dying to, to live like that in this country. Can God still provide for you if you live a life of self-sacrifice in serving him? 
You know, I've heard people tell me they can't afford to tithe. And I say, well, I can't afford not to tithe. You know, tithing isn't about this church is going to fall apart if people don't give. I mean, the Lord will provide. He showed me over over and over again. He keeps the doors open. But tithing is really an act of submission. Do you financially bless God knowing he's going to bless you back in that, you know? Can you volunteer? Can you factor in just some time in your week to make time for something kingdom-oriented? I never remember those nights I've taken overtime shifts, but I remember nights I used to get off early on Fridays, and I'd go down to downtown St. Paul, and I'd go street witness to the bums. Actually, they're not bums. They're demons dressed as bums, because I, oh, man, good stories. Oh, whoo. That's where the real action's at. I got to run into all my old, my old drug dealers. Got to run into all the, all the hood rats I used to run with. I'd go to the jail, see the kid who used to steal my bike. You know, all these great, great stories. We'd get together at our coffee house every Friday night after hours of street witnessing just to share the stories of, you know, who had the police called on, who got spit on, who got cans thrown at them. It was a good time. Verse 16, then the men rose from there and looked towards Sodom, and Abraham went with them to send them on the way. And the Lord said, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. I like that. God is just reassuring Abraham, you are going to have a global influence. I've anointed that on your life. Amos 3.7 plays into this story if you're taking notes. You can just write down the address, look it up later, but I'll read it. It says, Surely the Lord God does nothing unless he reveals his secret to his servants, the prophets. See, we're going to get into a dark portion of Scripture where he's going to have to act on Sodom and Gomorrah, but he's going to let Abraham in on what he's going to do. Just like you and I, Christian, we have the benefit of Bible prophecy. I'm a Bible prophecy nut, right? I grew up in Calvary Chapel. Allison, you did too. Prophecy, prophecy, prophecy. I mean, you read, you look at the paper going, Jesus is coming back, right? Like, like you know how to discern what's going on if you grew up understanding Bible prophecy. And, and I've learned to look for the return of Jesus Christ. I'm not looking for the Antichrist. I'm not looking for the end of the world per se. Right? I'm not looking forward to God judging possibly my friends and family, but I'm looking for the return for the establishment of righteousness on this planet. Man, and I'm looking forward to going up in the rapture. You know, I'm looking forward to that new heavenly body. I need some different tattoos. You know, I need to be taller and skinnier. <laughs> oh, my gray hair, go away. Yeah, you look like a 30-year-old again. But we get the benefit of the word of God. We get to see, you know, 25% of this Bible is Bible prophecy. 30%, some would argue. That's roughly one-third. One quarter of this is future events that have yet not been fulfilled. 50% of which, you know, we've seen fulfilled probably in the last thousand years or so. I mean, you look at the greatest one in our time would be the Reformation of Israel, May 14th, 1948. And as I watch what's going on in Israel, I'm excited. Not for the death and destruction and carnage, but I know the Lord is setting the stage. 
right? There's some things going on there that I'm excited about. Israel's kind of like our clock. But God's showing us what to look for, right? He's not giving us doom and gloom to uh, scare us. He's doing it to prepare us. And for also, in Abraham's case, to pray, thy kingdom come. See, we get to participate in God's will through prayer. But that's part of the secrets he reveals. There's things you and I, Christian, we know because we're believers. The world doesn't respect this book. They're always like, huh? Oh, you're just one of those conspiracy theorists. No, 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 no. I prefer the term history buff, right? Isn't that weird? In the last three years, conspiracies are actually sounding real. Like, yeah, that was a little too accurate. You know, I've read prophecy books from the 70s predicting the pandemic to the, to the T. I follow a guy who was popular in the 80s, Chuck Missler. Same thing. He predicted what happened three years ago. I, I went and listened to all his stuff, and people, people made him. They called him the prophecy wonk. But I'm like, no, he pretty much nailed it. So, And the thing is with us as a movement, as Calvary Chapel, we've always been really deep in prophecy. And so during the pandemic, all the other ministries lost their message because none of them could give an answer for what was going on. They were bickering, mask or no mask, shot or no shot. And we just kept preaching what we preached. We never changed. We never retooled. But everyone all of a sudden started listening to all the cavalry guys because guess what? It was making sense, right? Because this is our DNA. This is what we do. I was a televangelist. We couldn't meet that first month. Well, we could have. I just didn't. We had littles and older people. I wasn't sure what the sickness did, but I taught every night. I'd come in here, set up a little sound stage with my bookcase to make me look smart, you know, or I'd have the Israel flag in the back, you know. It was just, I was a televangelist. It was really corny. And because I couldn't get my hair cut, I'd cut a mullet. I would wear goofy hats. I was, I was a goofball. I had a good time. But I had 250 people every night watch me. We've never had 250 people in this building. You know, maybe 250 people have come and gone over the years, but people were paying attention because it was God's word and it was relevant to the time. But 19, this is, this is another thing to underline here. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him that they keep the way of the Lord to do righteousness and justice that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. This is a bit of a conditional promise. He, God is pouring into this singular believer in his household, right? This is a lost and pagan dying world around him in the land of Canaan at the time, and Abraham was it. But he's preparing a nation through Abraham, through Isaac, through Jacob, and he's got to set the stage for the Messiah to come out of that. But it's going to start with Abraham, because God's telling him, he says, you are not only going to have worldwide influence, but you are going to have authority and influence at home. Again, he's stressing, fathers, you raise your kids, you take care of your household, you take authority there, show them how it's done. You know, one of the things I hear and see and it's a cultural thing. Teenage rebellion. See, the Bible doesn't acknowledge the concept of what we call prolonged adolescence, and we label it being a teenager. 
That's a social construct since they got rid of the child labor laws. We had all these teenagers laying around doing nothing back in the turn of the century and through the 20s, and they just developed a youth culture. Biblically speaking, when do you become an adult? 12, 13 years old. That's why the Jews have a bar mitzvah and a bat mitzvah, right? And so teenage rebellion is something that occurs only in the Western culture. It's, it's a first world problem. And do you know why? Because we let it. You know, it's up to us to train our kids. Your child's going to spend 15% of his time in school, and 1% will be spent in Sunday school, but 84% of their time is going to be spent around you guys, your, as parents, as around us, right? And you've heard me say this, you can teach your kid table manners, but they're going to eat like you. <laughs> they're looking at us, right? Ever notice your kid, you can be perfect all week and you can fire that one wrong word or do that one wrong thing and they will pick up on it. Oh, and they will mimic it. Just once. All you need to do is slip once. And all of a sudden their memories activate. Their ears work. I, I have a six-year-old who's got broken ears. Except when you say things like candy, right? Or you say something stupid and then she's like repeating. You're like, where did you hear that? You? You have the greatest influence in their life. But don't let your kids rebel. I have friends, I've seen this. Their kids did not go through teenage rebellion simply because in unison, mom and dad said, we're not going to let this occur. And it took a lot of work. It took a lot of discipline and a lot of correction. But I have one friend, he's a pastor. All his kids, by the time they were 17, 18, bought their cars cash managing their own businesses, right? Started having tens of thousands in their savings account. They didn't get into drugs and alcohol and sex and they didn't get addicted to video games, right? They, 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 they started training their children to be adults as soon as possible rather than get them to 18 and then like, well, now you're an adult. I guess you can move out when you're 36. Let's start working on da 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 da, -da. I mean, look at the adolescents these days, right? 30's the new 18, it seems. But you don't need to let your kids rebel. I hope none of us have had kids to have friends. You know, it's not going to hurt them to demand something out of them. But again, like we said last week, you have to hold yourself to your own standard. But we have to train our children, right? Children are a blessing from God. Blessed is the man whose quiver is full. God has given you your kids for you to train them in righteousness, and he's with you. But you have 84% of your child's time to your disposal. You will always have the greatest influence in their life. You know, and some of us, as we become parents, you realize you're just like your mom and dad. Have you noticed that? Like things come out of your mouth and you're like, that's my mom. That's my dad. You're like, where did that come from? You're like, that was wired into you. <laughs> Include your kids in your faith walk. Talk to them about what God has done for you. Tell them about what you're walking through, how God has been so good just get them, get them out of rules and regulations and get them into, let me just give you what God has done. 
You know, let's talk about the scriptures together. It doesn't need to be intense. It just has to be, hey, let's just go out and do something together and let me just share with you what God has done. Trickle down righteousness. Verse 20. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So where did this outcry come from? Could it have been Abram? Or rather Abraham now? Was he from a distance watching and hearing the testimony of what was going on in Sodom and Gomorrah? I mean, the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah is so great that we've turned it into a byword. We've named an inappropriate behavior after what was going on in this city. right? It's carried on for generations now that whenever you hear Sodom and Gomorrah, you're always like... Oh, probably outdid what goes on in Vegas. Who knows? And God did such a good job destroying it, they, they kind of have an idea where it exists, but it's complete, utter destruction there. There's not even any human artifacts. They just find big sulfur balls throughout the desert. I've driven past the sign that says Sodom and Gomorrah that way, and it's just desert. But I think, honestly, perhaps... the most likely source of the outcry is Lot. You know, Second Peter 2, verse 7 says, God delivered righteous Lot, who was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. See, when we find Lot in the next chapter, he's sitting in the city gates. Right? He was an administrator in this filthy, filthy culture. And he, he was vexed, right? He was tormented by what he saw there. The Holy Spirit was upon him saying, this is wrong. But he didn't have the courage to act on his conviction, right? The world was, was affecting him more than he was affecting the world. He lost his message. But I think in his quiet time, in his prayer time, he probably was going, Lord, this is awful, So what exactly was the sin of Sodom? Ezekiel 16.49 tells us exactly what that sin was. It says, look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of food, and abundance of idleness. Neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. Woo! Does it look familiar? It's a recipe here, isn't it? Pride, self-sufficiency, they didn't need God. They were full. There was no struggle. Free time, right? What's the saying? Free time is what? The devil's playground. Idle time. And then they weren't concerned with anyone else around them. They were completely self-sufficient, self-absorbed. There is a limit to God's grace and mercy. The Bible repeatedly tells us he will not always strive with man. God will not strive with man. Remember back in Genesis 15, it says, For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. God is long-suffering to a point. See, he desires that none shall perish. Often he is waiting for that last man or woman to cry out to him, get saved in this wicked, reprobate world. 
But for his justice sake, there's a point where he needs to act. He knows when it's the point of no return in a person or a culture's life. He knows that oftentimes evil needs a physical restraint. But only he alone knows that. But God always relates to to humanity and mercy and grace, right? You ever get frustrated with the prevalence of evil? Do you get frustrated with why does God let evil people live such long lives? We have the saying, why do the good die young? Well, it's because he knows that if somebody's truly righteous, someone's right with God, if they die young, hey, they're going to be with him. Game over in a, in a good sense. But then there's evil, wicked people that he's just waiting and waiting for, waiting for that point where they're either going to completely harden their heart or they're going to get right with him. And we see that example throughout Scripture. And God's just giving them a chance. In fact, he's putting the earth suit on to go witness this firsthand. I think a lot of that is we see just in us as the church, we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And you know how sometimes you walk away from the news and you don't feel good. How can you feel good? How can you be indifferent about what goes on? Or, you know, as you try to find a movie that's appropriate and there's always something and you're like, oh, I'm a, I'm a, I like historical movies. I like period pieces. I like war flicks. And gosh, there's some that it's just, they just so focus on the evil that it's like, it's just almost vulgar and disgusting. And you always see, you know, hopefully a movie always has a happy ending, but sometimes you're just like, wow, you know, like just the inhumanity and the, and the demonic evil this world has, it does have an effect on our souls. And I think God, you know, as, and when the rapture occurs, it's going to be gloves are off. God is going to bless the world's desire to not want God and his people to be on this earth. And so as the restrainer, I believe the Holy Spirit throughout the presence of the church is going to be removed. It's going to unleash a floodgate of filth in this world. And it's God's wrath going, I'm giving you what you want. Now, the Holy Spirit will still be convicting the world of sin, but we have a special ability to restrain by our presence, but God's going to just accelerate, I mean, Think of it, the tribulation's only going to last seven years before it goes completely haywire. But God has to act. You know, whenever you get down, go read Revelation 19. Right? We win at the end. Just remember that, we win. We don't win now. We win future tense. Verse 22 says, Then the men turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood before the, still stood before the Lord. This is where God's going to have a little uh, negotiation with a good Jewish man. <laughs> Remember that from Israel? Friend, friend, come, special price for you. For you, yeah. For you, special friend. Yeah, they put on you, yeah, yeah, and give you some special price, and then they have 40 more underneath their counter. But Abraham here, he stood before the Lord. He said, would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? So the Lord said, If I find 
in Sodom, 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Then Abram answered and said, Indeed, now I am, excuse me, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. It's a good position of his heart. He said, look, I'm just ashes, but I'm, I'm taking it upon myself. Buck stops with me. Verse 28, suppose there were five less than 50 righteous. Would you destroy all the city for a lack of five? So he said, if I find there 45, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him again and said, suppose there should be 40 found there. So he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. So he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of the 20. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. But once more, suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. He stops the arguing, and the, rather than the arguing, but the, the petition there, because I think he knew how many were in Lot's house. And you think about the people we love that may go through the tribulation. I believe no, one in, no member of the church will see the tribulation. I'm a pre-tribber all the way. You want to be one too, right? I don't think the church is going to all of a sudden get a backbone. You know, they're not going to go from lukewarm to like super soldiers during the tribulation. I think God, God if he's going to fumigate, he's going to pull his kids out of the house. Right? Salvation is the work of the Holy Spirit, and people will get saved, but he's going to pull us out. But I think part of what we need to pray for is, you know, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We need to be standing in the gap as Abram, and we need to intercede for our family and our friends because we don't want them to go through this. But this ministry of intercession... Really, it's just praying on behalf of others. Pray for people that aren't being prayed for. We call it, again, standing in the gap. And we know here's, here's what goes on here. Prayer is not changing God's mind. God's plan always was to save Lot and his family. He just wanted to include Abraham in the process. And the reason is answered prayer produces great satisfaction in our labor for the kingdom. Oftentimes we get frustrated because people aren't responding to the things of God or you physically can't be by people that need ministry. And, and sometimes you just have to go to the Lord and be like, I need you to do the work. Right? You pray for our missionaries. You pray for, you pray for this, the evil. Like this morning, we're praying for God to... Um, do some things in this world, restrain physical evil, to, to dispatch people to the Gaza Strip to meet the human need. Like, we can't be there, but our prayers unlock that. And we get the same reward. We get to participate in the work of God throughout the world through our prayers. So ask yourself this question. How is your prayer life? If it's like mine, my flesh hates to pray. Set a prayer time and watch Satan unleash a barrage of interruption on your life. You ever sit down to pray and all of a sudden you have to, you got to sort the recycling. You got to do laundry. You got to call that, law, that person you haven't talked to in 10 years. The dog wants to play, right? You get the boop, 
right? You sit down with your Bible and the dog comes up and boops you. My, oh, I had one like that. I go to my office and my kids play drums on the door. What are you doing in there, Dad? Or just being able to sit for 20 minutes and pray is so hard. Or you sit down and all of a sudden you have amnesia. You don't even know what to pray for. You're like, uh, Lord, bless the whole world and all the people. Amen. Can't just pray generically. You can pray in the spirit. You know, our ministries only move forward on our knees. You know, an expression of our self-sufficiency and indifference to the lost and dying world around us is reflected in our empty prayer closets. You know, part of what we practice in our small studies is prayer. And what do I always say? No generic prayers or none of these unheard prayers. We're going to do you. There's something you can pray for, right? If they say pass, oh no, we're going to pick on you. Right, Allison? <laughs> we are there to pray, right? And there's always a worry or a concern. And the thing is, is we need to come into agreement in group prayer. Sometimes people will bring something up and they're like, really, my spirit bears witness to it. But really what I find is when I don't pray, when I have a fatalistic view that anything that's going to happen will happen. It's God's will. It's God's sovereignty. I don't need to participate or do anything about it. Well, that's a dangerous spot to be. We cannot be indifferent. You know, I, the, our ministries that we support um, for missions is the far-reaching ministries. And you get to see what these guys do throughout the globe. I used to read these articles out loud on Sunday, but I can't anymore because they're not child-friendly. And Wes is bringing up the point, like, we, we, he wants to show you the evil they're ministering to. And it's the vulgarity that happens to these children and these people. I mean, he's in Ukraine, he's in Mexico, he's been in Russia, he's all over the, the globe. He's in the South Sudan. I've seen the videos, I've talked to him, I've, you know, I see, and that's why I support him, is because of his transparency. But if you really, really understand the evil out there, we're not going to... We're not going to pray superficially anymore. We're not going to pray for uh, Aunt Bertha's sick dog. You know, there is a devil that wants to kill us. There is a devil that doesn't take a day off. And you're not just seeing man's inhumanity to man. You're seeing manifestations of demonic evil occurring in this world. And courtesy of our cell phone, we can pipe that stuff in daily. But if... We're self-sufficient and indifferent. We won't pray. So to ask yourself, do you believe that prayer works? Are you burdened for the lost? Are you burdened for the victims of evil in the world around us? Does your prayer life go outside of you? How about this? Who's your prayer partner? Do you have a prayer list? Do you pray specifically or generically? Sometimes I think we just need to pray. God, give me a burden to pray for. There's a saying, the popularity of a pastor is measured by the Sunday meeting. The popularity of the church is measured by the midweek study. 
And the popularity of Jesus Christ is measured in the church prayer meeting. Verse 33, so the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Proverbs 18.24 says, a man who has friends must himself be friendly, but there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. How do you relate towards God? If you're not saved, then primarily you're relating to him as your judge. Maybe he's just your savior. Maybe you're saved and you only have fire insurance, but you may not have any depth or intimate knowledge of God. So ask yourself, can God be your friend? You remember, I think it was in the 90s, the buddy Jesus, remember? The buddy Jesus. He's like, he's, that's the Jesus of modern worship. You ever listen to modern worship and it's sappy, girlfriendy lyrics to boyfriend God? And you're like, this is gross. I think this is an abomination before the Lord. I think this does not recognize the Lordship in our life. Like Jesus is some emotional support animal. He's like, a, he's like a little dog you put in a purse to make you feel good about yourself. And then there's the guy who has the ambiguous landlord upstairs. Oh, me and the man upstairs made a deal. No, you didn't. <laughs> if you really understood who God was, he would be your Lord and Savior. He will be on your knees. But in that... Perfect love casts out all fear. And you know, a way you recognize your lack of intimacy with God is how are you intimate with other brothers and sisters? Oftentimes people don't go to a church where there's intimacy with the Lord because they have nothing to talk about. It's like you ever been invited to a golf party? Anyone here like golf? Howard, you do, sorry. But you know what I mean, like, or a NASCAR party. I don't follow any of that, and I feel out of place. If all these people are sitting around talking about how fast they're driving and turning left, I'm like, where's the sausage and cheese, you know? I'm not, I'm just, and I've, I've seen people come here, and they won't talk about the things of God because they have no intimacy with God, and it has nothing to do with the group. It's just they themselves haven't crossed that threshold of being intimate with God. Can God be your friend? What would it take to get there? We have the formula there. You know, you just sit down with the Lord and get to know him in his word. You know, one of the best ways to worship God isn't necessarily through song. That's, that's important. But to listen to God, just put on an audio Bible, put on a great Bible teacher and just listen, you know. We can be like Mary, remember? Martha's in the kitchen. Hey, tell my sister get in and help. And Jesus says, what? She chose the better thing. She was at the feet of Jesus, just enamored and listening. And so that's a good place to start. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us opportunity to be your friend. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.